Let's do it. You ready? Yeah. Arizona. Yeah, you know it, boys. You know it. Welcome to a Saturday night right here in Phoenix, Arizona. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Arizona.FYI. My name's Mark, and today's story is an interesting one. The Glanton Massacre at Yuma Crossing. In its fictionalized form, it's called one of the best novels of all time. The fictionalized account is Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. He also wrote No Country for Old Men, and if that's any indication to you of the quality of his prose, I'm not going to be able to do it justice. I'd also like to note that none of the research for this podcast came directly or indirectly from that novel. My research has turned up several conflicting accounts of the events that we're going to cover, and the novel is most definitely an embellishment of the truth, that while well-researched by McCarthy, relies quite heavily on a single account by one of the bad guys we'll be talking about. I'd recommend checking it out, though, be warned it does revel in fetishistic descriptions of violence. Despite that, or perhaps because of it, it's quite an interesting and engaging story. So without further ado, The Glanton Massacre at Yuma Crossing. The gold rush is in full swing. Mexican and American prospectors, known as 49ers, are heading west through what is now southern Arizona along the Gila River. The stream of migrants, numbering often a hundred a day, were headed to the Placer gold deposits in California by way of Yuma. If you've ever driven to San Diego on I-8 through Yuma, you've seen the miles and miles and miles of sand dunes. You might know them as Glamis or Imperial, though their true name is Algodones Dunes. These are the same dunes where Jabba the Hutt's party barge threatened plucky young heroes, which were the setting for Tatooine. They were also the dunes that Kurt Russell fought the Goa Uld in Stargate, and today are prime recreation for paddle-tired dune buggies. This stretch of featureless desert between Yuma and Mexicali was the most dangerous of the entire trip from the east. Water was non-existent. Grazing lands for exhausted horses and oxen were nowhere to be found, and not a single tree afforded shade for tens of miles around. Travelers on this southern route, after having crossed the deserts of New Mexico and Arizona, were greeted to an even more desolate and disheartening wasteland plain called California. This stretch was described as a purgatory to be crossed as quickly as possible. Travelers had to choose between the vast, muck-slowed salt marsh desolation of the Salton Sink, or the wind-blown, sandblasted death on the Algodonas Dunes, dipping down into Mexico and Yuma and returning near Calexico. Two waterless marches of more than 25 miles each were bookended by disgusting wells that smelled of decay and were surrounded by bones. This was followed by another trek of 20 miles north to the salty New River in California. The only reason this wasteland was considered viable was the then-fresh tragedy of the Donner Party's cannibalistic wintry demise in the Sierra Nevada on the northern route two years previous. It still weighed heavily on the mind of anyone planning to travel to California. In 1847, the Mormon battalion under Lieutenant Colonel Philip St. George Cook beat a path into the sand of the dunes of the Salton Sea, digging a few key wells as they went, which would be used for decades after. In the subsequent year, a legion of U.S. dragoons traveled the route, redigging the wells from the burying sands. Even with the aid of the wells, the dragoons lost mules who, quote, died in harness 
their tongues swollen in their mouths for lack of water, and the men not much better off. During the few years of the gold rush, the trails through the desert became relative highways. Groups of miners regularly encountered one another or ran across recently vacated campsites. The desert floor became littered with articles left by owners too weary to carry them. Gun barrels, fragments of harnesses, casks, barrels, and broken wagons lay half-covered by the sands. Unfortunately, the desert was most hard on the beasts of burden crossing the desert. It was, quote, a perfect Golgotha. The bones of thousands of animals lay strewn about in every direction. Another wrote, quote, The hot air was laden with the fetid smell of dead mules and horses, and on all sides misery and death seemed to prevail. Samuel Chamberlain, one of John Joel Glanton's gang of Apache scalp hunters, who we're going to talk about in a moment, described his journey thusly. Away to the north, the Black Mountains of California seemed to recede as I advanced. At noon we halted for two hours, then once more resumed our solitary way. I was getting weak, my heavy arms weighed me down like lead. I had drawn my waist belt tighter and tighter until I was shaped like a wasp. On we went for hours, but the Black Mountains seemed as far off as ever. Long into the dark night we stumbled on until we sank exhausted on the sands. All day we kept on, lying down now and then, and staggering on, trying to gain on those craggy peaks which always fled before us. In September of 1849, Lieutenant Cave Johnson Coots, not the guy from Portal 2, of the U.S. First Dragoons, established Camp Salvation at Calexico to provide reprieve to travelers who made it through the trek. Leaving a garrison of soldiers, he moved east across what he termed the Grand Sahara Desert of California and established Camp Calhoun on the Colorado River at its confluence with the Gila. From these two camps, he distributed rations and water to hungry travelers and secured their passage. Come December, he closed both Camp Calhoun and Camp Salvation and returned to San Diego. The travelers kept coming. November of 1849, Dr. Abel L. Lincoln accompanies one Reverend Howard and his wife on a trip out west from St. Louis. Attached to their wagon is a boat that will eventually launch when they reach the headwaters of the Gila River, near today's New Mexico border. Before the dams and Civilian Conservation Corps works of the 20s and 30s, the big rivers of Arizona ran permanently. The Salt, Colorado, and especially the Gila were navigable by river boats, which could bring cargo and passengers across the state. The Gila was even used as a way to bring shipped goods from the Sea of Cortez all the way to Phoenix entirely by water. The party drifted downstream past the empty Salt River Valley, where the ancient ruins of a vast former civilization lay dormant and waiting to be discovered 17 years later. The party left the boat at Yuma and continued on to the Placers in California. Dr. Lincoln stayed for a month or so before returning to the Colorado River to build a ferry using the boat he had brought with him. Lincoln's ferry was doing a brisk business by the spring of 1850. He was transporting over 100 people a day. Dear parents, I presume this letter will somewhat astonish you when you observe my location. I have located a ferry at the junction of two rivers, the Gila and Colorado. This is the first and only ferry that has ever been established on this river. I've been here three months, during which time I've crossed over 20,000 Mexicans, all bound for the mines. I'm still carrying some hundred per day. During the three months that I've been here, I've taken in over $60,000. My price, $1 per man, horse or mule, $2, the pack, $1. I have 12 Americans, deserters of the army, that I'm paying $100 per month. Also 10 Mexicans that I pay $40 each. These men I have armed with Colt's revolvers. I've also got 16 U.S. rifles and a small piece of artillery. I pay $20 per bushel for cornmeal, 75% dried beef, $1.90 per pound. 
The country is entirely inhabited by Indians, and their principal pursuit is stealing and robbing. They've made repeated declarations of friendship to me, but have at different times proved themselves otherwise. They wear no clothing and have no regular place of living, but are continually migrating from place to place, as it were, in search of prey. I shall sell at the first opportunity and make you all a visit if I meet with no misfortune. This is an unsafe place to live in, and in addition, this rush of immigrants will shortly cease. I shall go to San Francisco in about 30 days. Your son, A. Lincoln. The Quechan aggressions and thefts, which began petty enough, escalated due to emigrant reprisals, and soon enough emigrants would camp with Lincoln began asking him to secure the ferry. Coincidentally, about this time, a Texian, which is a person who lived in Mexican Texas before the Republic was created, named John Joel Glanton, arrived with a gang of men at Lincoln's Ferry. Glanton was born and raised in South Carolina and Tennessee. He was an outlaw by age 16, whereupon his family traveled to Texas. Glanton participated in the fight for Texas's independence and later in the Mexican-American War. In 1847, he was implicated in the killing of a Mexican civilian in Magdalena, Sonora. Witnesses claimed it was murder. Glanton claimed the civilian had failed to obey his orders as sentry to halt. The cover-up of this event brought his commander into conflict with General Zachary Taylor, later President Taylor, and resulted in Glanton fleeing the U.S. military police. Some accounts of the man say his fiancée was killed by Lee Pan Apaches in 1835, near Gonzales, Texas, when Glanton was but 16 years old. The story goes that when his fiancée and another woman were stolen by the Apaches in a raid, Glanton participated in a rescue attempt to save them. Both women were executed and scalped during the attempt, and from this point on, Glanton harbored an obvious hatred for the tribe. This hatred for the Apaches, together with a bounty on an Apache scalps by a Mexican general, combined to turn Glanton into a monster. Some even say that before hearing of this bounty, Glanton maintained a smokehouse filled with dried scalps as trophies of his revenge. Due to his greed and dubious morals, Glanton led his gang into murdering and scalping peaceful agricultural Indians and Mexicans to claim his bounty. This drove the state of Chihuahua to put a bounty on the gang, pushing them into the neighboring state of Sonora. Soon, the Glanton gang wore out its welcome there too and fled north into Arizona. Glanton continued collecting scalps even after the bounty could no longer be collected. And as he and his gang terrorized their way across Arizona, on their way to San Diego, they encountered Dr. Abel Lincoln's ferry at Yuma, where they persuaded the doctor that they could help him secure it from the Ketchum tribe. For a few weeks, Glanton's gang kept the peace and enjoyed handsome wages from the ferry business for their efforts. Of course, being sedentary and working for a wage didn't satiate their wanderlust, and they began wrestling more and more control from Lincoln. Affairs escalated, and the gang began stealing possessions from the emigrants. They would send them naked and destitute into the desert toward San Diego. Horses were stolen, women were violated, and bodies began anonymously washing up at Yuma Camp downstream. At one point, a military company from Kentucky, headed by General Anderson, required crossing at the ferry. Balking at Glanton's exorbitant feet across, they built a ferry downriver, crossing and continuing on to California. This ferry was either taken over by the Quechan Indians or given to them by General Anderson, reportedly including a certificate of authenticity for the boat. The Quechans hired a man named Callahan to run it for them. Within days, this ferry was burned and Callahan's body was found without its head. Lincoln, by all accounts a good man, had by this point lost his taste for adventure in the West and regretted hiring Glanton. He locked himself in his cabin during much of Glanton's reign and was rarely seen in camp. Meanwhile, Glanton was amassing the spoils of his gang's exploits into a chest in his quarters, and eventually went to San Diego to bank his profits. While there, the gang got into a saloon brawl and ended up killing a U.S. soldier. After bribing the jail guard, Glanton returned to the ferry. 
During his absence, the gang began raising a wall to protect their operation, while still raping and pillaging any travelers unlucky enough to arrive at the ferry site. The depravities of the gang continued on for some many days after the killing of Callahan and the burning of the Indian ferry, until on April 23, 1850, a band of 15 to 20 Ketchens entered Glanton's camp, led by a warrior named Caballo and Pelo, or Horse's Hair. The Ketchens came under the auspices of brokering peace with Glanton and possibly continuing their ferry operations. They dined with Glanton and Lincoln, and after the meal the camp dozed in the midday heat. While three of Glanton's gang went out to cut poles for the ferry operation, a small contingent of the Ketchens approached them, offering to assist in the labor. At some point, Glanton's men became suspicious of the Ketchen party and chased them off with pistols. The Ketchens fled back towards the houses. When the three men arrived back, they were fired upon by the wedding Ketchens. One of them took an arrow to the foot, and the three fled to a boat moored along the river, dodging missiles left and right, until firing a pistol volley which sent the Ketchen scattering, the men escaped downriver. After several days of hiding out, they returned to the ferry, where they were fed by some of the Mexican inhabitants and told what had happened to Glanton and his men. They left and eventually made it to San Diego, where they wrote Dr. Lincoln's father and enclosed his posthumous letter. Public opinion on the massacre of Glanton's gang was split. Some called it a baseless and unforgivable aggression of the Quechan people. Others, citing the fact that only Glanton's gang, and unfortunately Lincoln by association, were targeted, while leaving alive the Mexican ferry workers and the other American travelers camped across the river, proved that the killings were revenge on bad men. This was substantiated by the peaceful settling down of the Ketchum people after the gang had been disposed of. The three men who had escaped, all members of Glanton's gang of scalp hunters, thieves, and murderers, reached San Diego. Due to their testimony, a town hall discussion resulted in a petition to the governor to, quote, punish a terrible murder committed on the American citizens there. This resulted in the Gila Expedition, which in July of 1850 cost the state of California $113,000, over $3 million in today's money. The expedition set out four months after the massacre, and after some initial skirmishing with the now peaceful Ketchens, the troops set up camp, exhausting their supplies over the next few weeks. The governor ordered the commander to disband his forces and return in September. Due to the cost of this endeavor and the subsequent aggressions in the California-Indian Wars, the state of California nearly bankrupted itself. I'd like to read one particularly biased article that I came across that I think is a good example of the whitewashing typical of the American treatment of Native peoples. Yuma, August 18th, 1908. One of Arizona's most picturesque pioneers and one of Yuma's very earliest settlers crossed the Great Divide Tucson Thursday night when Charles O. Brown died. Blah, 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 obituary, yada, yada. He was in the employ of the Mexican government and was sent to Fort Yuma in 1846 in company with Captain Glanton. At the time, there was a considerable settlement at Yuma and the town possessed an organized force of defenders and a stockade. Shortly after arriving, Mr. Brown with Glanton established the first ferry across the river. Travel along the southern trail into California was rushing in 1849-50, and the ferrymen prospered greatly. In 1850, there were rumors of an Indian uprising. Mr. Brown heeded the warning and obtained permission to go to San Diego. A short time after he left, the Yumas and Cocopas murdered every white man in the settlement, save one, who chanced to be down the river. Of the funds accumulated, Mr. Brown took with him a large amount in silver, but a jar containing $30,000 in gold was buried along the riverbank and is supposed to not have been recovered to this day. This article, which is sourced from a deserter from Glanton's gang more than three decades after the events, gets most of the facts of the matter wrong. It frames the situation as a legitimate business operation that fell prey to, quote, an Indian uprising 
and paints Glanton as a blameless victim of Indian aggression. This has been Arizona.FYI. I have been Mark. Until next time, make sure you get out there and explore our state. We'll see you later.